Everybody, welcome back. Thank you. <clears throat> and thank you, by the way, for um, sharing um, what we've had so far this morning on uh, Twitter and other platforms, uh, EBL 2020. Can we have a round of applause for Jenny Young for that brilliant keynote? Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Very good food for thought. Let me tell you uh, who else is here. Next to Jenny is Chris Southworth from the ICC UK, the International Chambers of Commerce. We're counting at least 45 million companies, a billion employees, 130 countries. So Chris, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. I've got questions for you. Thank you. Uh, it's lovely to see Devika Wood sitting next to me, a serial entrepreneur. I want to hear more about Health Hub, but you're also the founder of Vida, which was a care business and is a care business. And uh, I've seen how you've scaled that uh, brilliantly. And also, I am Arla. What's I am Arla? What is that? You're allowed to say. Yeah, it's a little thing I'll tell you about later. Oh, all right. Okay, <laughs> keep us waiting. It's good. All right. But also, Health Hub is uh, part Health of the main Hub from Wire It, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. So this is the global accelerator from Telefonica, uh, which we'll also touch on. But welcome to a serial entrepreneur who's been there and not afraid to talk about the bumps on the way. No. As well. It's <laughs> going to be all killer, no filler on this panel. Derry, you will possibly recognize already. Uh, Delhi Llewellyn Davies uh, is, uh, well, he's an absolute legend when it comes to extreme performance. He's built and sold several multi-million pound companies. You've advised over 300 boards. And in his spare time, he's climbed six of the world's highest mountains. He completes our panel. Let's give him all a round of applause. <laughs> I feel exhausted already. <laughs> right. Uh, the exam question, digital transformation. So here we go. Technology to support growth. Now then, if this was only a two-minute panel and you only had 30 seconds on this subject, what's top of your list? What's the one thing, Derry, I'm coming to you, on this subject that you just think, I've got to get this off the top of my head or the top, off my chest, because otherwise we'll never get back round to it. Give us it. Um, for me, I think it's intelligence, not data. So, and it's joining up the dots in the company. I'm feeling, I see from the number of boards I've advised now and from the data that we've sourced, people are still incredibly siloed in their data. Yeah. Um, and you've got great data in marketing, in sales, in operations, in cash, and in talent, or less so in the talent space, which is sad. Yeah. Um, but the next revolution for me is joining that intelligence up mm. um, so that the MD CEO founder can actually truly get dashboarding in the right way. But it's not AI yet. Okay. It yet. needs a person to translate the intelligence. Computers okay, so have their job. The dots, that sounds like but cross. actually, the AI is you. That's the key. Is you need to have. You need to be able to translate the intelligence, and that job is never going to be taken from you. And neither should it be. Right. So for me, well, is hang on. This is the trailer, Derry. Hang on. We're, we're, we're <laughs> going to come back to this. I get it. All right, Chris. What would you What would you put out there as a thought starter? Well, I think it's two, two points. Um, first of all, it's happening. At a global level, I mean, you made a comment earlier on that digitization is divisive. I, I find that amazing. In all the environments I'm in, uh, and that's the sort of intergovernmental space, G20, WTO, UN, there's absolutely no question whatsoever whether this is happening or not. Digitization is, is happening at a real pace, and there's lots of work going on, which I'll explain a little bit later. So that's the first point, is if you're not already getting ready, you need to start getting ready mm -hmm. in this space. And the second thing is, is you've got a huge advantage in the UK, the number three e-commerce market, digital trade market. There are loads of places around the world that aren't even doing a fraction of what was being described earlier on. You've got a huge competitive advantage. So if you're not already thinking about it, you should be thinking about how to capitalize your advantages elsewhere around the world, particularly oh. in the Commonwealth. E-commerce, am I putting you on the spot if I ask you who's number one and two, Chris? 
Uh, well, the obvious ones are US, um, but when we say e-commerce, I should say it's not e-commerce as in B2C retail trade, which we often relate to uh, yeah. in the UK. E-commerce in international terms is digital mm -hmm. trade, it's everything from finances right. uh, to that, everything Does this mean you don't know who number two is? I can't remember who number right, two is. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, who's number two? I need to know. China. Is it? Probably. <laughs> Guessing. Usually. Come on. <laughs> Come on. We're, we're a billion employees here, Chris. We need to know this stuff. I should know. I Devico. should know. Um, I think mine would be to make sure that you don't replace humans, but you're augmenting um, processes and operations with technology, especially when it comes to healthcare, which is what I have been in, right. social care. Yeah, yeah it is um, a firm believer that people try to come up with tech solutions and get rid of humans because they think it's going to make things so much better and make them more money. But actually, it's the humans at the core of health, especially, and social care that create the true value that we need. Right. And on this, Jenny, that was a cracking presentation. So if you had to distill Thanks, it, pal. lots of decisions facing our guests today in terms of how they're going to scale using tech, mm. what's the one thought you would put out there? You put me on the spot now. Um, I think it's about making sure you're bearing in mind it, it's like balance, isn't it? You look at the data, you look at the tech, and you look at the people. You need all those three things mm -hmm. in balance to make things succeed. And I think that's incredibly important to make sure you've, you've got that right. Because I guess one of the challenges is, Chris, you can see this as something that's happening over there. It's mm -hmm. good to know what the latest tech is. It's good to know how the laws are changing. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really affect me, does it? So let's get your sense of the big picture, and particularly what bubbles up in terms of something that we can't afford not to be aware of? Well, we have what's called the ICC Digital Trade Roadmap. If you haven't already seen that, I would highly recommend you do. It's a very simple slide deck, really. But what it is, are three pillars of work. Uh, we know that the two biggest barriers to digital trade are inter or scalability, the inability to kind of scale your business into other markets. You're dealing with 200 different sets of laws. Uh, interoperability, there are no global standards for digital trade. Hence, you get all these little blockchain islands and technology islands. Uh, and then the third pillar, which is really you, is getting fit, fit for purpose for this new digital uh, environment that we're all going to be operating and already are operating in. You know, our, our space is to work with governments uh, primarily to change the law and modernize the law, which is why there's a huge digital trade e-commerce negotiation going on at the WTO. Uh, there's 80 plus countries around the table, so that gives you a sense of the appetite but I can tell you now that when you sit in the room as I have, there's a hell of a lot more than 80. There's 300 people sitting in that room. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of governments watching the space who aren't necessarily at the table, but very clearly willing and wanting to improve that digital environment. So that's a space to watch. Uh, the ICC has just launched a new initiative this uh, last week, actually, called the Digital Standards Initiative, where we're going to start setting the standards to link up all the digital islands across shippers, insurers, financiers, traders, the whole lot over the course of the next few years. And then I think that the, the third pillar is really important. I can't stress this enough. And this message is to everyone globally, not just UK businesses, is get ready. Because the challenges you're facing here are the same challenges often that people face overseas. But obviously, it's first mover advantage. Those who are fitter uh, and ready and can use data properly uh, and have all the systems and processes available for it uh, we'll, ha we'll have that competitive advantage globally. So in terms of getting ready, you know, it's, it, it's knowing what's possible. But actually, if we get on the wrong side of this, um, and Derry, you must have seen this, this, this can spell um, some pretty big fines, some pretty limiting, um, you know, punishments for the companies that, that, that don't know 
what's going on? I mean, I mean, how aware of this should we be? Or do we go, I'll wait for the equivalent of a brown letter, it'll be all right? You, you need to be aware, but also you don't need to be scared. Um, and I think that's an important balance here. Um, the awareness, I think you said in your speech earlier, you were talking about your CIO or your CTO. You know, most businesses don't have one. They don't have this luxury. Mm. Uh, certainly up to about 10 million pound mark, we very rarely see it, unless you're a tech-led company, okay? Um, but then you need, if you don't have the advice, or so you, if you don't have the knowledge and you don't know this space, get the advice. And, and it's, it's as simple as having a trusted person on your board, uh, which you've already heard about this morning, a trusted person who's on, in this space who knows this stuff. I don't know this stuff. This is why I have the board members around me that I go to and go, can you tell me what I need to do here? And just do it. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, then, don't be scared because um, we've just got to move forward. And I think we can get paralyzed with this decision. And for most of the mid-space scale-ups, you just need to get back to work, get back to business, right. and do the basics incredibly well. Uh, and not uh, capitalizing on opportunities along the way, but not being scared of this data thing. Right. So, so Devika, take us back. How did you approach this as a founder? You would have had some really early decisions. Am I going to build something? Am I going to ask someone else to build it? What were the decisions you made? And what, with hindsight, do you wish someone had told you? as you started out? Oh, so many things. Is this like a... Yeah, it's slightly therapeutic, I hope. <laughs> Here we go. Um, I think because obviously it was social care and I came from being a young carer, so I'd experienced all of the different pains, uh, trials and tribulations of actually caring for someone and kind of looking at all of the lack of digital data and tech to aid my care journey with my grandmother. So when I came into it, my first and foremost thoughts were, okay, how can we connect the dots where it seemed to be just paper-based with simple technology solutions? So when we first came in, it was sort of like, okay, we'll create an app, which is pretty much just basically telling us when the care is going to arrive. So similar to what the Ubers were doing at the time. And this was four years ago, coming up to four and a half years ago now, so um, things have got much better. But what we came up against, and this is something around, I guess, scalability and regulations, is that um, in health and social care, you're governed by CQC, which is the um, governing body for all of the healthcare providers. And they had a very archaic and centralized stipulation of how data could be used and how technology could be used. And we came up with a solution which we said, this is what we're going to create and this is how we're going to monitor the care and the data. And our first um, obstacle, which was the thing that shocked me the most, was the CQC. So we were coming in and saying, we're going to change and transform the way that you can deliver care. We're going to make your life easier. We're going to make sure that data is more accessible. We're going to have better healthcare informed decisions being made and safer care being delivered. Yeah. And they were so against it Right. in a really, really, bad way in the sense that myself and some of our competitors who are now doing really well had to really steer back and reduce the amount of tech that we were going to be doing. So, so what's your lesson though? Is it, ah, because this is the Care Quality Commission Yeah, the Care here, Quality Commission. But they've yeah. said about a new invention, they've said, no, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. So what, I mean, I'm not being, I mean, crass, I mean, but do you, think, do you think you should have done more homework? I mean, first, could you have avoided this? They first and foremost, when we went into our first inspection, they um, basically almost failed us because we weren't adhering to their rules, right. even though we were doing it in a different way. We did all of our homework and we went to them and said we're going to do it this way and we really think this is going to help you and if you could just listen to us and we work with you it would be great and it didn't happen unfortunately my my lessons i think from that 
was maybe before you come up with an idea, engage with the regulators okay. and those that are potentially more legacy, archaic systems yeah. to get them involved in the solution that you're trying to create. Because um, when we did and we got them more on board and we became kind of closer with our inspector, even though they weren't making the decisions, they were in line with us and understanding what we were trying to achieve. Right, and we see now, don't we, Jenny, in terms of, I've seen some pictures even in the last year around facial recognition at events, saying how exciting this will be. That seems completely against the climate of fear we have around these technologies. So how do you keep one eye on the business, but one eye on the regulatory environment? It sounds exhausting. It is a challenge, isn't it? <laughs> so how um, do you, what, what are some practical tips on how you do it? Do you hire someone to do it? Are you getting into the weeds to understand what's legal, what's not? I, I think it's a mix, really. I, I think you have to make sure that it's not just one person that's responsible for it across the business because regulations impact every single different bit of the business. Mm -hmm. And I think you need to make people feel responsible and empowered to bring things forward. But yeah, you just have to make sure that you've got every alert kicking about, you're, you're reading up and you're coming out to events and you're meeting people and you're absorbing as much as you can. But you know, there's always a risk you're gonna, you're gonna get caught out really. So is, is, is there the equivalent, Chris, of a hotline we can call if we want to understand what's possible? Because yeah. budgets for lawyers and accountants will be limited. Well, I, th I think there's a really important lesson to learn here. I mean, we're um, looking at a range of 12 countries at the moment, some developed, some less developed, um, and, and what sort of challenges businesses are finding. And actually, what they are is pretty much the same across all the countries. Because digital trade is cross-cutting, you know, we're dealing, or you're dealing with, often multiple departments, uh, four or five, six in the UK's case, uh, most of whom don't really understand what you do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think one of the lessons to learn, you know, if you're dealing with the care, care is a massive area of opportunity around health for, for digital. Uh, but, you know, they're health professionals. You've got to think of it like that. Um, they're not business people. They don't understand your day-to-day -day operations. This is the kind of thing that we do at the WTO. We take business people to government. But don't underestimate the power of a case study. Uh, it may seem like a pain to you to sit down and write 200 words about what you do because uh, you're doing it all day, every day. For government, that's the difference between changing policy or not changing policy. But I think in this space, it's really, really important that you explain what you're doing to the people making the right. policies well, so the environment then again, is conducive here's for the other, you. Here's the other school of thought, Chris, right? Derry and Devika on this. You could, as a business leader, go, do you know, I'm going to see all of the legislation and the regulation like a sailor sees the wind. I can't control it. I just adjust my sails accordingly. Or you could get stuck in and try and change something. So what's the right answer? I had a really funny story on this, just, just on that point, because the one thing we did to come over, overcome the CQC thing is when we had our inspection and we had created this tech platform. Um, for inspectors, they like to come into a room with um, paper-based documents, which is all the care records, right. and they need to see it all clearly laid out because it helps them ease their way into the inspection because they have a lot to look through. So we printed out screenshots of our tech platform yes. um, into paper forms. <laughs> so it helped them to go through the same process that they would have done. So I think that was, and it was literally, they had- but Did it work? It. Yeah, but I was to like, this, this doesn't, I can't get my head around this. I literally printed out like a basically the Amazon rainforest version of trees yeah. to help them look through the data that was all online just because they didn't want to go online to do it. It was crazy. But it can be, I mean, it's a serious question though, <laughs> because it, you can be easily seduced by the policy makers, by, you know, if you're trying to, or, or you could just go, do you know what, head down, build my business. I mean, I'd, I basically wanted to, I wanted to do what was right for the business and I had to try and kind of meet them halfway. After that, it changed drastically, but I think it was getting them onto our side initially yeah. to show that we were on the same page as them okay. was really important. So I've got loads to get on, but quick thought on this, Derry, and then we're gonna move. 
I think in your space it's very different. You have to have an eye on that. So mm. that's, that's important. And it depends on the space you're in. But 95% of the businesses I work with, it's irrelevant in that. In fact, what we're trying to do is break against it. Um, so, if we were, so if I was sitting here and I'd spent my career going to policy and following the government, I wouldn't have built the businesses I have and I wouldn't have had the success we've had. So I think as entrepreneurs, we have to break the norm. We have to be challenging what's out there. And if we're being led by government, we're being led by the wrong place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. However, in certain cases, and certainly in the Care Commission, we have to have an eye on it. That's all. Um, but radical change will come through breaking the norm. Radical change will be coming through doing things differently and thinking things differently. So uh, if my personal view is, is balls out, go for it, and to keep an eye Terry. on the keep an eye on the government, but actually have somebody else. If you're if you're driving your own business and you're scaling right. your own business, you've probably not got the right eye. I don't, as you can probably tell by my answer. All right, but then I've got wise people around me that can sense check me and, and steer me in and make sure I'm not going completely wild and rogue so, to the so left. So what about then? And this is a question for all of you. An organisation that says, Do you know, we haven't got that tech talent internally at this point, and that's why we rely on agencies, consultants, advisors around the company. To what extent is that a wise decision? What have you seen firsthand, Jenny? Uh, I must admit, I'm quite a fan of spread betting, I suppose. Um, being able to make sure that you've kind of got some backup, but in different areas, so that if one thing goes wrong, you've got the backup elsewhere. Um, when I set up my previous business, I did make sure we outsourced the um, software build, mm -hmm. which had its challenges, but also it felt like it was more in control because it was a partnership between ourselves and the actual builders. Mm -hmm. um, Tap it, who built Tap it? Tap it, that was internal. Okay, so you've done that internally, yeah. okay. Uh, Devika, your decisions and uh, maybe something you learned the hard way about who does the build and of course, any maintenance Ooh. upgrades? Um, if I was to do it again, I mean, the cost is better when you outsource it, but when it comes to actually creating a platform and building it in-house, considering we had all the regulations, we needed our CTO to work very closely with our care team who mm. were governing all of the, what we then saw as a hindrance, which was the regulations, to actually build the tech in line with what we were trying to do for CQC. Yeah. So it actually helped to bring it in-house so we could have our data officer and our GDPR officer all sitting together inside the team meetings to build the tech around what we had to do to mm. adhere. And how important has it been to you as a founder to understand all of the tech and implications or are you more of a delegate and trust philosophy? <laughs> Um, I think I learned the hard way that I had to actually learn it all because when I did delegate and trust, I thought I was delegating and I thought we all understood what was the issues, but actually none of us did. Um, and that's a problem when you're a founder and yeah. you are going into a space that's brand new. You're, you are definitely not to know what everything. So I think right. you all have to kind of tap in and have your eye open on things that are really important. Well, on that, Derry, if you were to, I mean, I'm going to ask you to generalize about the biggest mistakes you see scale-up companies make when it comes to their tech investments. What, what comes to the top of your list? Um, it is this choice. This is one of the most pivotal choices you're going to make. Is, uh, but this isn't a new choice. I think people are putting it in a new camp. It's, yeah. a, it's a supply chain choice. The choice has been around for decades. You have to choose your supply chain, and this is part of it. So it's, it's not a new thinking. Um, and where is your core competence, and should it be internal? So that's a different mm. question. So if we think about my core competence needs to be internal for me to be able to drive it, then you should be building it internally. Yeah. If it's not your core competence and it's not where you drive, so if you're a marketing-led company and the operations could be outsourced. Um, but the biggest mistakes, I think, is people are, rap uh, are running into that decision, not thinking it through. Um, also from valuation, which I'll be speaking on later, this drives the value of your company, mm -hmm. this decision. 
Because if you outsource everything, if you've got an over-reliance, one of the things you'll see, when one of the main drivers of business value is making sure you haven't got an over-reliance on customer, over-reliance on supplier, yeah. over-reliance on employee. So if you then outsource, that's a very dangerous game to one player. That's why I love your term spread betting, right? Mm -hmm. Is if you're going to outsource, you've got to control that supply chain. You've got to know the implications mm -hmm. of getting that wrong. I know a number of my clients made the choice to outsource to China, which is now having big implications right now. You didn't see that one coming, right? We're going to talk about that later. But I think the, the key is, is it's a supply chain decision, yep. and it's got to be thought through. Right. So let's uh, momentarily, I'm going to come out to you for your questions, your thoughts. Maybe you're facing a challenge right now. Maybe you've got a specific question. But let me just ask the panel on hype. Some of these technologies, and um, Jenny talked about AI, but some can seem a little overhyped. In terms of your members, Chris, is there a particular um, is there a particular technology that you think, frankly, is going to change everything? And what, what are you seeing from your members? Well, I mean, I can tell you the ones that you know, the ones everyone's talking about, like blo blockchain and so on. But I mean, we're te technology neutral for that specific reason, because technology will come and go. What we're interested in is creating the growth environment, whatever your technology, that's the most important priority. But there's no question that, you know, the technology like blockchain are happening. Uh, and they're not necessarily happening here, by the way. They're happening overseas. So whether you know it's happening here, in a way, isn't necessarily that relevant. If you're trying to trade overseas, right, they so are. So has anyone got happening. for me on the panel an example of where blockchain has actually made a difference to a single customer in the whole world on anything? What would what would an example bubbling up be? Jenny, Derry, Dev, Chris. Yeah, I've got quite a lot, but on, I mean, um, well, I've got just a list the, here. But I mean, just there's, the one. There's, there's, well, there's quite. I mean, there's trades going on. I mean, the, where it's really happening, I suppose, is not so much the startup space. It's more the big commodity space. So when you get the likes of HSBC, Shell, BP, the big energy companies shifting big commodities. I mean, really, what they're doing is they're testing the technology for, for everyone else. Actually, in many ways, that's the space to watch. So it's not particularly relevant. It's a bit like what you were saying earlier. Keep an eye on it. Um, whether that's going to come to your way eventually, I suspect it probably will. But trying to just ignore it and say it's not happening. But isn't that's, that, that, when you talk about that, isn't that part of Jenny's spread betting, hedging? Isn't that like the CMO getting an Alexa for the bathroom well, just to see what it's like? Yeah, I, like I say, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say go blockchain. I think you've got it. Sometimes it's not right. You get, you know, you've got to make sure that you've got the right technology. That's exactly why we're technology neutral. But in areas, it's not necessarily where you think it's happening either. Health is quite a lot going on in Africa as well. Um, so you know, just take the technologies. Don't get drawn into the red herrings of specific technologies. The most right. important thing is digitization. Red herrings. Give us another. Happening. Okay. Give us another red herring, Devika. You have perhaps wasted some time on a red herring. Mind you, you've got to be across it because through wire you're advising a lot of businesses. What's yeah. a waste? What's a waste? What's overhyped? Overhyped. Um, I think. Okay. So recently there was a whole thing about AI with Babylon. Um, there was huge BBC so this is the health tech company bought by Google, based in King's Cross. Um, so basically allowing GPs to look through the phone. And then oh, I'm talking about DeepMind, forgive me. Babylon about? Health. Babylon yeah, right. Health, yeah. Doctor on your phone. Yeah, got it, sorry. <laughs> like, really? Ali Parser, founder, <laughs> sorry, forgive me. Um, so, I mean, a great concept when you think about it, alleviating the pressures off the GPs, yeah. um, using basically FaceTime to connect you with a GP, and yeah. then prescribing, allowing you to get the prescription straight away from the pharmacy. When it first set up, that was literally what it was. Um, there was loads of things around the fact that they were taking the doctors away from the NHS, therefore were you actually doing anything of value rather than adding to the problem. The 
big thing that's come out now is the actual AI solution around it. So um, there was a consultant that was anonymous on Twitter that was basically testing this product over the last two years, found out that when he was putting in symptoms, it was coming out with completely the wrong advice. Mm -hmm. So people that should have been representing, presenting themselves with potential heart attacks, they were saying you had cystic fibrosis um, or just um, gastro problems or you know heart problems. Yep. Um, and it meant that it was deterrent to people's actual health and well-being. So things like that, they claim to be better than junior doctors and that their AI could essentially make it better than a junior doctor. Mm. I think that's where the big red herrings lie, and that, which is what I said before. You can never replace human beings. You can augment it with technology, but you can never replace it. And things like AI, it relies on that human putting in information at the moment mm. to give you the best decisions. Right. We are not beyond the computer yet. Therefore, we cannot rely solely, especially on things like healthcare, to make such huge decisions. There's a, there's a healthy scepticism there. And Derry, yeah. when you're advising boards and you hear that they've gone down a certain alley, what gets you just shaking your head saying, why are we investing time and resource in this? Uh, I think there's a number of times in the last couple of years, blockchains come up for a number. And I can tell you now, flat out, 100% of my clients, zero impact um, yet. Again, I'm keeping an eye on it. Okay. So I have lunch every six months. I have uh, uh, lunch with an expert in that space, right? Global expert. And every time I finish that lunch, I go, thanks very much. I need to do nothing for the next six months with my client base. So, and it's worth the lunch. Um, and then I just pass that down the chain to all of our clients, right? Because it's not relevant yet. Yes. Now, to the big boys, remember, we're, we're advising in the 2 million to 50 million scale up. Yeah. So that's a very different space. If I was back in corporate, if I was back at European board level again, I'd be, have, I'd be all over that right now because I have to be, right? But even then, I think yes. a lot of it's a distraction. I like um, the keep in touch. I like that. Also, it's a good way to end a lunch, isn't it? Thank you. This just, is fascinating. Thanks very much. Yeah, I go, useless. I useless. And I'm going to move <laughs> well, on. I'll give you, I, I mean, I'll give you another example. 5G. I mean, if, if you want to see 5G technology, I, I would recommend you go to Shenzhen mm -hmm. in China. Mm -hmm. Then you'll see 5G technology. It well. is unbelievable. <laughs> just not right now, though. The, well, not right now. <laughs> uh, give it a couple of months. But, I mean, the quality of information coming in is extraordinary. And I wouldn't right. believe all the media kind of rubbish around it. it. It's amazing what you can do with that data when you really want to. And like, it, you what, know, like what, like what? Well, like health. If, if you look at a health crisis like the coronavirus, actually Shenzhen is a perfect example where they're almost testing the technology actually on it, is you know exactly every single case within a city, exactly where it is, exactly where all your resources are, and exactly how to solve those solutions as and where they are. But isn't that you know, speed of computing and processing nothing to do with the 5G? I oh, know, it's absolutely about 5G. It's the, it's, the, it's the enabling technology to allow the data to get into the computer in the first place. Otherwise, you don't have it. Mm. Otherwise, it's all lots of pockets of computers. Okay. Well, is. I had a glass of something with Minter Dial in Beijing last year, and we should have known about this. What are, you, what are, what are your questions? Who's got an observation? Who's already disagreed with something that's been said? Or what has not been said? That's the question. What's bubbling up? Yes, we'll come to you, and I'm looking around as well. Here we are. Hi there, thanks. Uh, great panel. My name is Charlie. I'm from a company called Engage. Um, we actually do customer service AI, so going all the way back to the start of the panel where you were talking about AI, mm. a lot of the time we're finding that actually the AI isn't reducing jobs at all. It's obviously augmenting, as you've already said, augmenting the roles, informing them so that actually there's a more efficient process and much more informed. But actually, we're finding that it's generating more jobs as a result because of neural network maintenance, where essentially you have to hire someone to look after the AI to make sure that it is sticking to the model that you want it to be staying at. So 
I guess the recommendation would be to look at AI as a way of not only expanding what you're doing, improving efficiencies, but also looking at compliance and all the other areas where you can mm. drive efficiencies for the business. Okay, but the, the creating more jobs, Charlie, if I'm the mm. chancellor, that sounds wonderful. But as a business owner, does that mean I have to employ more people if I'm going to do AI? Not necessarily. Obviously, as you're driving more efficiency in the business, it well, might on. be Is that it creating jobs or not for my company? So it will, in, if you're looking to generate further improvements from the AI, you want to provide that. But then also you can look at redistributing resources in the business. Yep. So taking some individuals that are utilizing those models to do that um, okay. in your network maintenance. Okay. Ha hands up, if you've got an AI chatbot, hands up who thinks that chatbot should admit that it's not a human, really, should admit that. Hands up. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Hands up if it's all right for AI chatbots to sort of pretend they're human. It's fine. Come on. It's only customer service. <laughs> No, no one's put their hand up, right. We'll talk about it over coffee. All right. Um, other questions and observations? Maybe it's something much closer to home, something that's challenging you right now you want to answer on or uh, some more insight. Questions? Yes, we'll go just there. Thank you. Feel free to say where you're from and you don't have to. I won't be uh, rude to you like I was to Charlie there. Sorry about that, Charlie. That's okay. Um, I'm Harry Hooker. Um, I'm from a creative agency called Three Colors Rule. Um, I was just wondering, going back to that point about, um, sorry, in Jenny's, um, when she was speaking, about employees sitting on the, on the fence and kind of having people sitting on the fence, what, what do you define as that? Because a lot of what we've been saying about, you know, keeping an eye on that and, um, you know, spread betting and all of that, yeah. it could be considered as sitting on the fence itself. So I just wanted to see what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, lovely. I think when I talk about spread betting, I think there's inherent risk of putting your eggs all in one basket in terms of be it agencies, tech build, whatever. And, and I totally agree in terms of when you're building your tech, if it totally core to your business, then it has to be internal. Um, but hedgers, I think, are very unique people in a business. And, and they say often when you're going through transformation in a business, any kind of cultural transformation, you've got 20% of your team, they're automatically on board. You've got 40% that sit in the middle and 40% who are kind of laggards that will come through when they see everyone else. So it's that 40% in the middle you really have to focus on. And for them, they are waiting to see which way it's going to fall. Okay. But I think it is about really embedding culturally exactly what success is and rewarding the right people. And I think that is different from spread betting. Spread mm -hmm. betting is minimizing business risk, whereas hedging is about making sure that your team is, is following the right trajectory yeah. for the business culturally. And it's not scattergun, is it? It yeah, is yeah. very deliberate. Difficult. Who have been your most trusted advisors, mentors on these tech questions? Who have you had a hotline too, when you've, when you've had a fork in the road, what have you learned? I've actually not had that, and I think that's where I probably went wrong. I needed one of those. I think every, from what I've learned, and my biggest mistake was that I didn't have somebody that was the kind of ownership of data and understanding my industry that I could kind of tap into when there was stuff going wrong. So my advice would be for any person starting something in an area that is quite heavy regulations or heavy on data and tech, is to get that person that you can tap into for advice as and when you need it. Right, and, and, and without being too personal, is it with hindsight that you didn't have that person in your network or that they were there, you just didn't call them? Do you see what I mean? 
Interesting. Um, they might have been there and I didn't call them because I guess as a young founder, as you're learning, you don't really think to ask for advice until it all goes a little bit wrong. We were talking about that earlier. Um, because you think that you know because it's your baby and it's what you've created. And it's only when you come out of it, you go, oh my God, if I'd asked advice on that, I probably would have saved a lot of heartache. So on that, Derry, not to undermine your amazingly worth, uh, you know, value, value, value for money fees, um, <laughs> top tip for scaling businesses who want to get a main line of advice on tech, but frankly might, you know, go misty-eyed at the sight of the big four or whatever it might be. Uh, top tip for knowing where to find that advice, but not breaking the bank. The top tip for me is, so who have I been for advice? I can name a hundred people. That's the truth. And that's, I think that's the difference in the last 40 years for me. Um, in that, when I was in my 20s and my first scale, I had my first startup and my first scale up in 1998 in the dot-coms. And I didn't look for advice. My ego was the size of a small house, and I thought I knew all the answers. <laughs> now, 20 years on, I absolutely I know a lot more now, but I know I don't know. Yeah. And I, that's the difference in 40 years. The primary advice I give any of you for seeking any form of advice, or certainly, it's not just technology, let's just widen that to any form of advice, is know the question. Mm -hmm. Know the question incredibly deeply of what you want answered. And then go to find the most r respectable person who's actually proven the results to get the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why there's not one person for me on the tech. I will literally, you know, every time I'm going, I need the answer to that. Who can answer that question for me with the most precision and has got the most results? It's as a, a better image, it. isn't it, of a whole range of people we can come to. I'm definitely going to go to the ICC website after this because I think there's a real treasure trove up there. I wish we had a bit longer. Jenny, Chris, Devika, and Derry. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.